Thank you for joining me for part two of the three-part deep dive series into the financial crimes of Melissa Caddick. Today, we will be discussing the raid, the inquest, and the foot. Hello and welcome to the TCC podcast. I am LB and this is the True Crime Chronicles. If this is your first time finding me, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. I am so happy that you're here. Be sure to follow me so you never miss an episode. Like, comment, share, leave a rating, all the categories. It would help me out a lot and it would be greatly appreciated. If you haven't heard part one, I would definitely pause here and go back and listen to that and then come back to this one. If you have heard part one, then let's get into part two. This is part two of the financial crimes of Melissa Caddick. So how did the raid of Melissa Caddick and her Dover Heights house, like how did that come to be? Well, multiple different things had to happen in order for us to get here. Now, the initial complaint was made in November of 2019, and it was made to the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, or ASIC, by the woman whose license was stolen by Melissa, and that is Jennifer Porter. And Melissa had taken the license and passed it off as her own. Now, I don't have a 100% for certain way of knowing how Jennifer was tipped off that her license was being used But I saw that a client or a potential client of Melissa's did their due diligence and they notified Jennifer about what was going on. Jennifer then does the right thing and reports Melissa to the correct agency or authorities. But ASIC, they didn't really do much. They took note of the complaint. You know, they recorded it, documented it. And that's about it. And it just sort of sat there after that. Then by just sheer coincidence, Two women are in the same dentist office. They're in the waiting room on August 13th of 2020. Dominique Ogilvie and Jennifer Porter. They were both waiting to be seen by the doctor and they strike up a conversation as people so often do in that situation. Now, at some point, the topic of conversation turns to investments. And Jennifer mentions to Dominique something about a woman by the name of Melissa Caddick that she had stolen her financial services license information and was now using it without her permission. Jennifer tells her that she's reported this to the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, again, or ASIC. Now, Dominique is hearing this and literally just cannot believe what she's hearing. I mean, she's stunned. And who wouldn't be? I mean, you're in a dentist's office, right? And she was alarmed with the way that Jennifer was speaking to her. Now, Dominique verifies with Jennifer that what she heard was correct, right? Like, I'm sorry, could you just, I don't know, maybe just say that again, because I definitely didn't hear you clearly, right? Who who wouldn't? But yeah, I mean, she heard Jennifer correctly. So Dominique is now trying to make sense of the information that she was just given, and she begins to try and process everything. Now, I do want to say here that I saw two different versions of how this conversation went down. Now, one version is that they're talking in the waiting room, and Jennifer tells her everything there. In the second version, I see where Jennifer meets Dominique at her house and tells her everything there. That kind of seems a little odd to me. I mean, I would maybe meet you at like a coffee shop 
or something, but I don't know that I would have a complete stranger in my house. But maybe for this situation, as serious as it was, maybe I would, I, you know, I don't know. But either way, Dominique takes what Jennifer says seriously. See, Dominique had invested $2.5 million of her money with none other than Melissa Caddick. Now, Dominique had met Melissa in January of 2020. They met during a ski vacation, of course, in Aspen. Now, Melissa did her normal, you know, spiel of, oh, God, I'm so booked right now. Like, I would love to take care of you, but oh, I just can't, right? Like, so much going on. And then, of course, a spot just miraculously opens up about a month or so later. Now, Dominique, she ultimately invests, you know, $1 million first with Melissa. She sees the returns that it gets, and she's like, oh, my God. Yeah, let me just throw in another 1.5 mil, right? So she's in for $2.5 million with Melissa. Now, after her talk with Jennifer, Dominique calls Melissa immediately and tells her she needs to pull all of her money out ASAP. And she's doing this because she wants to buy a house. So in August of 2020, shortly after her meeting with Jennifer, Dominique receives not only her full investment of $2.5 million, but an additional $382,000 that was supposedly her profits that were made from her investments. Around this time, another complaint comes in to the ASIC department. Now, I'm going to assume that this complaint comes from Dominique. The first complaint, it didn't really go anywhere. It wasn't taken too seriously. But the second complaint, it was much more detailed. And this one definitely got their attention. Now, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, they formally opened an investigation into Melissa Caddick and her fraudulent activities on September 8th of 2020. Now, from here, things really started to move into place, and the investigation was 100% in full swing from there forward. And things, it moved really fast after that. Now, most of Melissa's clients were family members or longtime friends, so they had to be very careful on how they worked their investigation and who they spoke to. They didn't want Melissa to be tipped off or get wind of what they were doing. Now, through their investigation, ASIC figures out that Melissa is using false accreditations and licensure to defraud her clients. Well, if they would have taken the first complaint or tip seriously, they would have already known this. But moving forward, Now, they figured out that she would create false financial statements to make her clients believe that they were getting, you know, these incredible, almost unrealistic returns. Now, between 2018 and 2020 alone, Melissa steals over $20 million of investor funds. They also discover that client funds are going to fund Melissa and her family's very extravagant, very posh lifestyle. Now, September 14th of 2020, Dominique is interviewed by ASIC. She says in the interview, and again later at the inquest, that after she withdrew her funds in August, she never spoke with Melissa again. She never contacted her. She never answered any of her subsequent calls, emails, or texts. Now, Dominique said that she never had any type of communication with Melissa regarding her conversation with Jennifer, her concerns, or her communication with ASIC after she withdrew her funds. 
by just absolute sheer coincidence, I guess, the day after Dominique spoke with ASIC, Melissa hires a shredding company to dispose of documents. Now, ASIC investigators, they looked into it and they denied that the two events were linked at all. But I will say, I mean, that's a hell of a coincidence, though. I mean, maybe Dominique didn't tip Melissa off, but I feel like maybe somebody did. Or maybe after she requested the funds back, it spooked Melissa a bit. And that is kind of what fueled the shredding episode. Or maybe she just had a sense, right? Or a feeling. But no matter the reason why, Melissa got rid of a lot of documents. Illegal documents. But, you know, maybe this was... You know, something that she did periodically in a cover your ass type of thing. And it just so happened to time up with the investigation. I mean, I would think that the shredding would be something that she would do often instead of having all that paperwork just sitting around. Now, November 10th, the ASIC preemptively froze Melissa's bank accounts and got a court order forbidding her from leaving the country and or using her passport. Now, I've always wondered, though, like how they froze her bank accounts and she never figured it out unless she just used credit cards for everything and they were just hoping, you know, that she didn't try to use the bank in the 24 hours or whatever that they froze the account. And she didn't have a lot of time to figure it out because the next morning, November 11th of 2020, sometime between 6 and 7 a.m., the alphabets come knocking on Melissa on Melissa's Dover Heights door. You know, something I'm sure along the lines of like, this is a raid, motherfucker. You know, maybe, I don't know, something like that. And it lasted all day. Now, over the course of 12 hours, Melissa, who was dressed in all black workout gear, She stood by and she watched as 21 officers bagged, tagged, itemized, and confiscated all of her belongings. But, I mean, these are belongings, though, that were potentially purchased with stolen funds. So, were they hers? But they confiscated things like files, computers, all of the designer handbags and clothing, her extensive sneaker collection, her luxury shoes, and all of her jewelry. And when I say all of her jewelry, I mean even her wedding rings and Anthony's wedding band. Now, as the officers are going through all of Melissa's things and removing them from the house, she is shooting rapid fire questions at the officers. Now, around 6 or 7 p.m., the officers wrap up their business at the house and they head out. Now, can you imagine just the roller coaster of Oh, fuckness that had to be going through Melissa's mind at that moment. I mean, she had to know that she was fucked at that point. Like, it's over. It's it's done. And the anxiety and just, you know, shit, shit, shit. She had to have been feeling, you know, watching everything you own being taken away. Now, I know I have to say everything she owns in a very loose sense, because obviously it was purchased with other people's money. Now, that said, I'm sure it's nothing compared to the fear 
the anxiety, and the absolute panic that her victims felt once they figured everything out. I mean, they had to just feel absolutely sick. And and remember, they weren't even given the courtesy of a phone call, right? They had to watch it on the news. So, yeah. But Melissa seemed to carry on with a business-as-usual type of attitude. After the raid, Melissa, Anthony, and the minor son, they ordered in dinner that night before going to bed around 9.30 p.m. Now, Anthony says that he got up about 4 a.m., where he did see Melissa at that time, and then he went back to sleep. Now, that version of events is going to be called into question a little bit later on. Now, early the next morning, roughly about 5.30 a.m., Melissa's son hears his mother leave the house, or what he assumes, right, is his mom, and he assumes that she's going out for a morning run. Now, when Anthony gets up and realizes that his wife is gone, he comes basically to the same conclusion as her son, that she just went out for a run to kind of burn off some steam from the day before. Now, at about 7.16 a.m., when Melissa has not returned, Anthony starts sending his wife multiple text messages with no answers received. So shortly after he sends her the text messages, Anthony realizes that Melissa's phone was plugged into the charger in the walk-in closet. She didn't have her phone. She didn't have her keys, her identification, credit cards, nothing. And he realizes that he has no way to contact her. But Melissa never returns from her run. And it's not until 30 hours later that Anthony reports her missing. Now, investigators hear this and they assume that, you know, Melissa's taking her money and she's dipped, right? She's gone. And that this is just another Melissa scam. And they side-eyed the husband pretty hard. Why did he wait over a day, you know, 30 hours to report her missing? Like, why would he wait like that? So the police don't waste any time. Detective investigator Gretchen Adkins she was in charge of Melissa's missing persons case. So Detective Inspector Adkins, she said waiting that 30-hour window made the case exponentially more difficult. She said it's hard enough to work any missing persons case. Then you add 30 hours of extra time that you have to piece together. And that's really hard. Like that's a lot of extra time. Now Detective Adkins, she immediately starts to do a technology canvas of Melissa's neighborhood and the area that she would have been running in. And she was not seen on any CCTV cameras, not on a ring, not on any type of surveillance videos. It was kind of like she just vanished. No one knew where she was, and really, there was no way to track her. Now, Anthony and Melissa's CCTV system was seized during the November 11th raid. And I guess through that, they could check or see what was going on in the house. And I guess maybe they left the cameras up or something and they could see what was going on the morning that she disappeared. But the CCTV system, it didn't show Melissa leaving the house that morning. And it didn't show what direction she would have gone in. So I don't know if maybe all the exits, they just weren't covered by the CCTV cameras but they never saw Melissa leave the house the morning of November 12th. 
at least not through the CCTV that they had confiscated. Detective Adkins, she said that they really suspected Anthony's involvement as far as aiding Melissa's escape. But after some really tough conversations with Anthony, you know, at this point in the investigation, the police no longer felt like he was involved in her disappearance or in the fraud. Now, Anthony always cooperated when police asked him to. And by the beginning of February, he was completely broke. He had less than $2 in his bank account. And he had Melissa's son that he was still taking care of. It got so bad and he was so desperate. He even reached out to Melissa's victims, the people she robbed completely blind and asked for help and donations with his living expenses until she returned. Now, that is either just ballsy as fuck, or it is just a huge level of desperation that I can't even wrap my mind around, or both. Now, around February 15th, police were actively issuing appeals from the public for information on Melissa's whereabouts. They also issued a theory that they were definitely not ruling out. And in fact, they were very actively considering that Melissa was working with an accomplice in order to flee with the missing money. NSW Police Commissioner Mick Fuller, he tells reporters that they had no specific leads at that moment, but they said that if Melissa's plans were to leave Australia and potentially go overseas, doing so with all of the COVID restrictions and her lack of identification and a passport, she would definitely have to be aided by someone. Now, they would make public pleas for Melissa to come home and turn herself in. And the sooner she does this, the better, not just for her, but also for her family. At this point in the investigation, Commissioner Fuller revealed to the public that Melissa had been being investigated by the Australian Financial Crime Squad and by ASIC, and that Melissa's arrest was imminent at this point. But her arrest would never happen. There were more than 50 possible sightings reported to the NSW police in the weeks following her disappearance, but nothing that really panned out. I mean, there were no solid or confirmed sightings of her. February 21st, 2021, 18 weeks and three days later, a shoe washes up on Bornda Beach on the southern coast of New South Wales. Now, this is just south of Tathra about 450 to 500 kilometers or roughly 310 miles from where Melissa Caddick was last seen. And it appeared to be the same type of shoe that Melissa was seen wearing during the raid the day before she goes missing. It was a gray A6 shoe, some type of rare special edition shoe, so not a super common one. But it wasn't just the shoe. Inside the shoe was part of a decomposing foot. And DNA showed that the foot belonged to Melissa Caddick. So cue the conspiracy theories, which we will definitely get to here in a bit. But if this is Melissa's foot, then where's the rest of her? February 26th of 2021. More human remains wash up on shore, but this time on Mollymook Beach at about 6.30 p.m. Now, the remains that washed up was a human torso with a belly button, but this wasn't Melissa. It ended up being a male scuba diver that had gone missing. 
Now, Commissioner Fuller said that many people jumped from the cliffs without their remains washing up several hundred kilometers away. Now, other bones were found also around the Malimuk Beach, but they ended up being animal bones. Now, Commissioner Fuller, he did comment that it's not common to see body parts wash up so far south of Sydney and in such good condition, given that Melissa went missing on or about November 12th. Not to say that it can't happen. That'll be up to the coroner to make that determination. Now, April 6th of 2021, after the foot was found, the family holds a memorial service or funeral, I guess, of sorts. Since no definitive determinations on whether she was alive or not had really been made yet. It was a private service with her parents, Ted and Barbara, brother Adam. They were in attendance and there was a small handful of friends. Also her husband, Anthony, and her son. Now, Anthony led the procession out of the chapel alongside the funeral director, who helped him carry some flowers. Melissa's parents followed behind him. Now, at this point, a death certificate had not been issued for Melissa. The family had the foot cremated and placed in an urn. The New South Wales Commissioner McFuller said that they're unable to determine how the foot was separated from the rest of Melissa and how it got into the water. Did she jump? I mean, she lived. She did live by a place called The Gap, which was, again, the set of cliffs known for people to go and commit, you know, self-harm by jumping off of them. The problem, well, I guess one of the problems is that they can't track any of Melissa's whereabouts after she leaves. And there's literally no surveillance videos of her even leaving the house. So did she jump? Was she murdered? I can think of at least 72 people who might be mad enough to hurt her and possibly kill her. But, I mean, her foot didn't really give any answers. In fact, it kind of confused things more. So the level of decomposition that the foot was in, it didn't necessarily match the length of time that it was supposed to have been in the water. Neither did the condition of the shoe. Now, the shoe came out pretty clean with no barnacles or buildup. But we will get into specifics on the shoe and the decomposition coming up here in a little bit. So did Melissa die from self-infliction? Was she murdered? When did she die? Or even did she? Or did Melissa cut off her own foot or have it removed, you know, by a professional so that it appeared that she was dead. Which I know some people think that's a long shot, but is it? I don't know. So, and the police don't know either. They really have no idea at this point how Melissa's foot came to be detached from her body, how long it had been in the water, or even like what the foot means as far as if Melissa is alive or not. And where was the rest of her? So a 10-day inquest is ordered to try and get to the bottom of what's going on. So what is an inquest? Well, an inquest is an inquiry into the circumstances surrounding a death. So essentially, it's an investigation into the decedent's life, who they were, how, when, and where that they died. 
Now, an inquest also is to provide the details needed in order for a death certificate to be filed and the death to be officially registered. The inquest into the fate of Melissa Caddick took place and was conducted by Deputy State Coroner Elizabeth Ryan. Now, several different areas were discussed and evaluated during this inquest investigation. There were also details about the November 11th, 2020 raid that came out during the inquest that had not been publicly released prior. Now, Anthony Coletti had made several complaints about investigator Isabella Allen, and she was an investigator with the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, and she had participated in the raid at Melissa and Anthony's Dover Heights house on November 11th, 2020. And she also led the investigation into Melissa's activities since September 8th of 2020. Now, Anthony, Ted, and Barbara, which were Melissa's parents, and brother Adam, they directly blame investigator Allen for Melissa's disappearance and likely death. Now, they allege that investigator Ryan saw that Melissa was highly distressed throughout the duration of the raid and that neither Melissa or Anthony were allowed food or water. Now, I don't know why they singled out investigator Isabella Ryan for this because there were at least 20 other officers there that were taking place in the raid. And she wasn't even the person who was assigned to kind of babysit or shadow Melissa while the raid was happening. That was Gretchen Adkins. So I don't know why the whole family went so hard on Isabella Ryan, but they did. Anthony also accused the A6 officers of trying on and parading around in Melissa's jewelry, dressing up in her luxury shoes, clothing, and trying on her handbags while giggling and laughing. Investigator Allen said that was absolute fantasy. It never happened. Now, Melissa was shadowed or essentially followed around throughout the entire duration of the raid for obvious reasons, right? And the ATF assigned the job to Constable Amelia Griffin. Now, she confirmed that Melissa had made herself a protein smoothie that morning. Well, I would hope she's using it considering she spent like tens of thousands of dollars buying these protein shakes. So use it up, lady. Now, Constable Griffin said that she told Melissa she was free to roam around the property if she wished to do so. And Investigator Allen also confirmed that during her testimony, Melissa was observed filing her nails at various points throughout the day and that she had even taken a nap at one point. Now, Investigator Allen said that the only type of emotion that was shown by Melissa at all that day was when she had a look of horror on her face when her wedding rings were confiscated. And as they were put into a plastic baggie, they kind of clanged together. So that upset Melissa quite a bit, at least according to Investigator Allen. Now, Melissa's brother, he directly asked Investigator Allen, how do you feel about being responsible for Melissa's death? Do you feel responsible? And Investigator Allen just calmly responded that no, I mean, she did not feel responsible and that she was just doing her job. She also vehemently denied any accusations that ASIC officers were parading around in any of the items seized as part of the investigation. Now, Investigator Allen was the one who did a lot of the initial investigation prior to the raid as of September 8th. 
So that's the only reason I could think of like why the family went so hard and and singled her out as being responsible for Melissa's disappearance. But there were a lot of people involved in this investigation, not just her. So I didn't think that was very fair to A, say that to her. She's not responsible for the decisions of another person. So that was pretty shitty, honestly. But I understand there was a lot of emotion that was going around at the time. And, you know, as part of or on behalf of the family of Melissa, they're upset, even though she robbed them blind. Right. Like this was still their daughter, their wife, their sister. And she was missing and likely dead. So I get that emotions were high. Now, November 23rd, Detective Sergeant Michael Fasciolo took over the missing person investigation from Detective Sergeant Michael Kiner just to kind of put some fresh eyes on it. Now, part of the investigation was to analyze the data from her phone. Now, data from Apple was sort of eyebrow-raising, honestly. It showed that someone was potentially trying to externally access her Apple account. There was also a potential PIN data point at the Sydney airport on November 13th of 2020 at 12.45 a.m., and this was found on her Uber account. Now, November 20th of 2020, that was also a pretty important and, again, kind of side-eyeing day. Now, a media appeal was made on behalf of investigators informing the victims that they were scammed or that their nest eggs may be in peril. That's a quote. Now, can you imagine being one of her victims and this is how you find out that you're absolutely fucked? They didn't even have the decency to at least privately call and inform these people. And in my opinion, that's very shitty. Now, a lot of questions were raised around the integrity and competence of the police investigation. The house wasn't searched or processed after Melissa's disappearance for almost three weeks. 19 days after Melissa goes missing, senior crime scene officer Ellen Conza was brought in to forensically process the Dover Heights house. Now, she reported seeing nothing of particular interest in the house. There was no sign of blood or evidence of the cleaning up of any blood. There was just nothing that indicated a fight or trauma or crime of any kind. But would there be 19 days after it happened? I would say probably not. I mean, I would assume at that point it would have been cleaned up If there was a mess from a fight, stuff would have been put back together or thrown out if it was broken, replaced. I don't know. So I don't know that that really says anything. A search of their luxury cars at the property, that showed nothing as well. And they appeared to be untouched. Now, Officer Ellen said that her observation was that the vehicles looked like they hadn't been cleaned for a period of time. And... In her opinion, they had not been cleaned within the 19 days since Melissa had disappeared. Now, another issue of concern was with the NSW police force's initial search inquiries. Like, how much CCTV footage was seized and reviewed? Also, with the extensiveness of the canvassing of the neighborhood. Now, Detective Sergeant Michael Kiner, he said the surrounding streets in Melissa's Dover Heights neighborhood, they were canvassed but any results were dependent on people being home for them to speak to. 
I do wonder, though, how much effort was put into the follow-up of these houses and the attempts to obtain footage from neighbors or anyone that was in the area where she was thought to have been. Now, a lawyer who was assisting the deputy coroner, so the lawyer was Louise Coleman, she brought up the question as to why the homicide unit was never brought in if nothing else, just to be able to rule out foul play. And I agree with that. I mean, this woman's missing. She just stole, you know, tens of millions of dollars from people. I mean, to me, that would be a big target on your back. And then she just disappears. There's no footage. You know, there's no nothing. I I definitely would think that homicide would be brought in at some point, probably earlier rather than later in the investigation. There was also information that Melissa had a life insurance policy that included coverage even in the event of a suicide, which is definitely not a common addendum to a policy. So I would definitely want to know, was that part of the original policy? Was that added later? And if it was added later, when? I would definitely want to know that, but I couldn't find that information. Now, police were given the information that Melissa had made multiple references over the years of ending her own life by self-infliction. Even having all this information, the police devoted very minimal resources to checking into any of it. Now, a friend of Melissa's testified that by August of 2020, Melissa seemed to be feeling some financial pressure or having financial problems. And while she and Melissa were out taking a walk around the cliffs of Dover Heights, also referred to as the Rodney Reserve or the Gap. So not too far from her house, were these cliffs, the Rodney Reserve, the Gap. They were very close. So they're out walking around. And Melissa tells her, if I'm going to end it, it's going to be here. And she was referencing the cliffs. Now, according to that same friend, Melissa often made the comment to her, I can't do it anymore. And I would imagine just the guilt and the pressure and trying to figure out how you keep this up as as, even as long as she has, but like, indefinitely in the future that had to weigh on her i don't see how it couldn't now there was also testimony that during the breakdown of melissa's first marriage after leaving the uk and returning to australia she had told her brother if it all gets too much for me you'll find me at the gap which again was the nickname for the cliffs out by her house in dover heights now around that time melissa gave another friend a four-letter code that she told this friend to pass on to her brother Adam in the event that she ended up missing. Now, the police had all of this information and they didn't really do much with it or follow up with it. Now, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Carrie Eagle, through testimony, speaking with friends and family and case observation, testified that she believed Melissa suffered from NPD, which is Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Now, Dr. Eagle made note that people who suffered from this condition are at higher risk of taking their own life if they suffer an event or a situation that brought shame or embarrassment to them. Now, another detective testified that he was very surprised that the NSW Police Department requested the A6 affidavit outlining their case against Melissa not until months after her disappearance. So it was definitely not the best or well-put-together case or investigation 
there were a lot of holes and a lot of things just flat out that were not looked into or not followed up on. Testimony was heard regarding how Melissa's foot ended up in the water. Now, the original detective, Detective Sergeant Michael Kiners, his opinion and number one theory was that she voluntarily went missing with the assistance of her husband, Anthony Colati. Now, the second equally dominant theory via Detective Inspector Gretchen Adkins was that Melissa self-harmed because of the investigation into her fraudulent activity and her imminent arrest. Another pretty popular theory was that Melissa was harmed by someone she had ripped off. But with minimal evidence, a sloppy investigation, and no crime scene, I mean, they just didn't really have many leads to follow up on or anything to really prove that. Now, the end result of the inquest was that Melissa Caddick was deemed, yes, she was deceased. But cause, manner, and time of death was absolutely unable to be determined. So they tried to analyze the one piece of evidence that they did have to try to get some sort of look into what happened. And that was Melissa's foot. The foot was the main clue in Melissa's death investigation. The only actual remains that were found was her right foot. And it was found in a gray Asics sneaker that was not readily and widely available. It was not available for purchase in Australia. In fact, it's not available for purchase in any place other than in Israel. Now, a couple reasons I find this interesting. One, what are the odds that this was someone else's foot? Melissa had been pretty heavily documented wearing this particular set of shoes, including the day before she disappears. Melissa was on body cam in photos and also seen by eyewitnesses wearing these shoes during the raid November 11th of 2020. So it made me think, did Melissa ever take them off or did something happen that night after the raid? Or maybe she did leave at 530 the next morning. She was in a full set of black workout gear during the raid. Maybe that's what she was getting ready to do when the authorities showed up around 6 a.m. that morning. Maybe working out was her typical morning routine. Now, this will come into question in part three of whether working out was her normal routine. So what do the experts think about the foot? There were two prominent experts that weighed in about, A, the possibility that Melissa did not take her life and is alive somewhere, non-extraditionable, sans her right foot, just living her best life off of other people's money. And B, how long was her foot in the water? A lot of thoughts are out there that the foot had not been in the water for the duration of time that Melissa had been gone. A very well-known criminologist, Dr. Xanthi Mallet, she gave her expert opinion at the inquest. Now, Dr. Mallet said it's possible that Melissa is alive at the extreme end of what's possible. Now, what's been recovered is a foot, and medically, you can survive without a foot. It wouldn't be impossible to disappear when you have that much money. Now, as an investigator, I couldn't rule that out. But what's possible and what's likely are two very different things. She also said that if more remains were found, it would be confirmation. But just a foot was skeptical. 
Now, having said that, though, Dr. Mallet made it very clear that she did not subscribe to the theory, or in her direct words, the wild speculation, that Melissa is still hopping around somewhere spending her fortune. Well, her stolen fortune. Te- you know, technically, other people's fortunes. Now, Dr. Mallet also addressed the question of whether Melissa was dead or alive when the foot was removed. Her thought was, I know fact is stranger than fiction. However, I don't think we can stretch the fact this far. Based on her personality profile, Dr. Mallet does not think that she was likely to have committed suicide. I agree. She determined that the most likely outcome is that she was sadly murdered. The second most likely is that she died from self-infliction. And then the third most likely is that she's still alive. So how was the foot removed? An orthopedic surgeon testified during the inquest that it was very unlikely Melissa could have or would have severed her own foot as it would have required significant force to cut through the bone, causing major blood loss, and what would also require post-surgical care by a specialist. And this is definitely hard to do by yourself. It was also testified to during the inquest that an amputation of the foot at the ankle, it's not lethal on its own. But in order to stay alive, you would need proper care during the removal and after. Now, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I definitely think it would be possible for enough money for you to bribe a doctor maybe to do that if you found the right one. I mean, there are instances of, you know, very, very famous, very rich people who have doctors on payroll who do things that are against ethics or that they would not normally do for a typical patient. So I'm not saying that that's what I think happened, but I definitely can't just brush it off as not being a possibility. Forensic pathologist, Dr. Jennifer Pocourtney, she determined that the foot had decomposition due to being in the water for an extended amount of time. But due to the loss of soft tissue, she was unable to determine the length of time or the circumstances that resulted in the foot being separated from the body. Now, medical examinations of Melissa's severed foot, they were unable to determine a cause of death. But Dr. Pacourtney did testify that it was unlikely her foot had been separately, had been separated deliberately by Melissa or someone else. But as we go on and we hear from other experts, you'll find that nobody can agree on how the foot became separated from Melissa whether she's alive, whether she's not. I mean, there's literally different opinions on all of this, and it's very hard to determine based off of just that what happened. Because during the inquest, an international aquatic forensics expert testified that a key detail in Melissa's shoe suggests that she possibly was alive well after she disappeared. Now, Murdoch University expert, Dr. Paola Magni, stated that the shoe would have had barnacles and marine growth on it within two weeks of being in the water. Now, Dr. Magny said that the lack of barnacles was very odd. But she also added that if the shoe was protected underwater, such as in a plastic bag or maybe submerged in a car or a barrel, there is less chance of barnacles or growth. So the implication in that statement is definitely interesting. Now, leading criminal psychology expert Tim Watson Monroe, 
He agreed that the level of decomposition in the shoe would suggest that the shoe was not just free-floating in the water for three months. Now, Tim did readily say, while it's not my area of expertise, if that's the case, a possible scenario is that Melissa was murdered recently. Or it's possible even that she was murdered when she went missing and the foot was just preserved for a while, which is super creepy to think about. He did continue saying, a severed foot is a great throw-off. The police and the public, they see this foot and case closed. And essentially, that's exactly what happened. Now, the other question was, if Melissa had jumped from the gap, where would her remains have washed up? Moninha Ruffin, who is a professor of oceanography at the University of NSW, she says it's definitely possible that the tide could have carried the shoe that far. Now, the professor said she looked at the ocean circulation that occurred during the months of November through February and compared the drift patterns of the biodegradable drifters that Professor Ruffin and her team had deployed around the same time as Melissa's disappearance. And she determined that the possibility of Melissa's shoe washing up so far south is well within the realm of possibility. Now, by sheer coincidence, Dr. Ruffin and her team was conducting an experiment tracking how the ocean would carry biodegradable drifters. They fitted three items roughly the size of a shoe, and they were fitted with satellite tracking devices. Now, the drifters were released from Port Stevens, about 150 kilometers north of Sydney, and one of them washed up about 250 kilometers south at Jervis Bay. Now, this next part, it doesn't exactly like directly link to Melissa's foot, but I think it does kind of explain a little bit, so I'm going to include it. Now, in British Columbia, at least 21 feet have washed up on a specific stretch of the Canadian coast since 2007. But so far, the investigators have ruled out foul play for these 21 feet. Now, Matthew Ord, a forensic pathologist with the University of British Columbia, he said that the phenomenon was due in part to innovations in the design of running shoes. Over the recent years, they have become more and more advanced in their design and construction, and many of them contain pockets of air filter bubbles in the soles, which make the shoe more buoyant. So it would be able to travel as far as Melissa's foot did. Police Marine Command, they also conducted experiments and investigation about the path of the shoe. Now, the Marine Command's experiments, they also matched their drift modeling. And their modeling showed the possibility of a body entering the water near Dover Heights around the time of Melissa's disappearance and would most likely reach the southern coastal town of Bermagui, which is about an hour or 59.6 kilometers north of where Melissa's foot had washed on shore. Now, this is around the Tathra area. And this is where we're going to stop part two. Now, in part three, which is the final part in this deep dive series, we are going to go over all of Anthony's inconsistencies in his stories. And trust me, there is a lot. We're going to go over the victim stories. We're going to talk about the theories of what happened to Melissa. And we're going to go over just the overall aftermath of Melissa's devastation. And that should be out tomorrow. So definitely look for that. Thank you again for joining me today. Be sure to follow me so you don't miss an episode and have a wonderful day.